seated. Uh, Chad's going to come up and make an announcement for us as we get rolling here. Chad? Guys, last week, uh, Phil, you all remember Phil? Pink shirt, Phil Ahu? He had a prayer request right at the very end, and Steve prayed for uh, a guy that attends here. His name is Rick Capato. He's with us tonight. And uh, he's had some dire circumstances, as, as Phil mentioned. His uh, wife passed away uh, a week ago. And, uh, and he's in need. And as a church body, as a men's ministry, uh, we'd really like to reach out to him uh, in the area of providing food for him. It is just himself and his 10-year-old son, Robert, and just the two of them. Not a lot of family around. Um, I have a list right here. We, the church has actually provided food through the weekend, but we would like to, as a men's ministry, provide food for him from Monday through Sunday the following week, which will include Thanksgiving. I have this list right here. I'm going to pass it around, ask you guys to uh, help out. This, this guy's really in need. Up at the top, there's uh, directions to his house. There's a telephone number. Please call Rick and set up an appointment to get with him, but I'd really appreciate you all reaching out and, uh, and helping Thanks. Yeah. Let's just do that, Chad. Let's make it available through the church office tomorrow sure. if you want to call. Yeah, yeah. Sure. The other thing is we sure don't want you guys cooking. Yeah. <laughs> Rick, you don't need that, do you? I mean, you need some real food, man. Yeah. So uh, we want to minister to Rick. We don't want to... We don't want to hurt him, so we'll get, your, we'll get the wives in on this, Rick, okay? Good, Chad. We'll have that with Joanne. Is that all right? We can do that tomorrow. Guys can call. All right, good. Well, let's pray, and let's pray for Rick especially. Um, uh, we're, we're glad he's here tonight. Father, we come to you, and we thank you that you are there. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you are sovereign over our lives. Uh, you're, you're sovereign over every aspect of our lives. And even, Lord, when we leave this earth, you're sovereign over our lives. We, we pray for Rick especially tonight in the loss of his wife. We thank you that she knew you. We thank you that she is in your presence. We thank you for the assurance of the word of God on that fact. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you will comfort uh, Rick and his son with, with that truth. Especially, Lord, as we're entering into a, a, a time uh, of the holidays when family gets together. This is going to be a tough stretch for them. It's going to be a tough road. So we pray that your presence might be especially real uh, to Rick and his son. And Father, we, uh, we pray for our, our, our every need that's, that's represented here. Uh, we haven't uh, opened it up. We're not aware of all the needs. But we thank you that you are aware. We thank you that you've got your eye on every guy in this room, uh, every circumstance, every situation, every detail, uh, everything that's uh, in our lives that's hanging out there and not quite resolved, you're sovereign over that. So tonight, Lord, uh, we bring to you our request. Last week, we were told to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, to let our requests be made known to you. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We live on that promise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat>
I uh, was reading this week about an elderly man who was, uh, who was on his deathbed. He wasn't doing well. They had brought him home. Uh, he was going in and out of consciousness, uh, barely aware of the circumstances. It seemed that it would be just a few hours before he would, uh, before he would pass on. And suddenly, he sat straight up in bed. And uh, something got his attention. What it was was a fragrance. What it was was an aroma. Um, he smelled the greatest smell in the world, which is the smell of chocolate chip cookies baking in the oven. It brought him right out of his semi-comatose situation. With all the strength he could muster, he got out of bed and haltingly made his way into the kitchen. And there before his eyes were literally hundreds and hundreds of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies stacked on plates over every square inch of counter space. Trembling, his hand reached out to grab one last chocolate chip cookie. And as he did, a spatula came out of nowhere and slapped his hand. Don't you dare touch those cookies, his wife said. Those are for the funeral. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a pretty poor story, actually. But, but there's some truth in it. Uh, Paul is winding up Philippians. He is uh, uh, he, he, he's not ready for a funeral personally, but he is uh, wrapping up the book. And as we looked at last week, he is pulling in, as he wraps up this book, he's pulling in some different thoughts and some, in a sense, some random thoughts and tying this book up, uh, this letter up into a, a nice package. And he's covering some essential details that he, uh, that, that, that is essential for these people in Philippi to understand. Uh, we want to begin reading in chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Uh, they had sent him, if you recall, a financial gift. Uh, they were aware that he had a need. They had sent him a gift financially. Not only that, but they had sent Epaphroditus, um, uh, to encourage Paul and to assist him as he was under a type of uh, house arrest in, uh, in Rome. He was chained to a uh, Roman soldier, uh, members of the Praetorian Guard, the elite troops of, uh, of Caesar. Uh, Paul had uh, a relative amount of freedom. Uh, people could come and visit him. Uh, he had company coming and going. They sent Epaphroditus to assist him as, as he's in jail and awaiting, awaiting trial. So he's thanking them here for the gift. Then in verse 11, he says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. 
And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, where, where they were, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance, and I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And the grace which is in the Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus, be with your spirit. Um, really, at the end, you sense the thank you that's in Paul's heart. Uh, you, you get a sense that he had fond memories for these people. Uh, this was a church he had started. This was a church that he had founded. He knew these people personally. He knew them by name. Uh, they had a special place in his heart because um, they had done some special things for Paul. When, when he had been in need, they had showed up. When, uh, when he was hurting, they were supportive. When, um, you know, there was a time in Paul's life when he felt like just about everyone deserted him. That was not the case with the people at Philippi. They were, uh, uh, they were trustworthy. They were steady. They were, uh, they were consistent. Here's another thing they were. They were loyal. Isn't loyalty a great thing? Gosh, loyalty has become such a rare thing in our day and age. Uh, uh, Paul could count on these people. Um, why were they the way that they were? What was, it, what was it about these people? If there was something that characterized the people at uh, Philippi, I think it was the fact that they were givers. Uh, they, were, they were generous. They were, really, they were, they were willing and, uh, and they were able and they were ready to do whatever they could do whenever it needed to be done to meet a need. Let's go back and, and, and just kind of take a scalpel out and, and make some cuts here, uh, some incisions in this text. Um, back in 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Uh, indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now, now, they had helped Paul time and time again. But then he goes on and he says, not that I speak from want, and then he makes an amazing statement. He says, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. That's a remarkable statement. Um, contentment is a rare jewel in life. Uh, so many times as men, what we're striving for in life, what we're after, and, and I think it's a result of being in the culture that we're in. If there's anything that, uh, that drives us, and if there's anything that we're after, it, uh, it, tends to be, uh, it tends to be success. Success is something that drives us. Success is something that, uh, that uh, many of us are motivated by. Uh, we go into depression when we don't achieve it. 
Um, what is success? Uh, success, the, the American definition of success is, I think, when you break it down, if you have an elevation in two or three things, you're successful. If you have an elevation in, um, in wealth, you're successful. If you ha and, and who's against that? I mean, that's, we're all for that. Uh, if you have an elevation in, uh, if you have an elevation in privilege, uh, you're successful. Uh, usually, the higher up the corporate ladder you go, the more privilege that you will encounter. Now, a lot of times, those, uh, those privileges can be abused. But that's just the way it works. The, the, the more successful you are, the more privileges you are granted. So there's uh, success is an elevation in wealth. It's an elevation in privilege. Success is also an elevation in power. In power. Um, it's interesting to watch, I think, the response of some of these politicians who have lost power. That they don't know what to do. Uh, they're, they're lashing out. They're blaming everyone except themselves. Uh, they don't like it. They don't like being out of power. Why? Well, because when you've got power, you've got uh, power. Wasn't it Lord Acton that says, uh, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely. Absolutely. You see? That's why we have a balance system, at least. That's how it was set up by the, by the founding fathers, to try to balance power in this nation because, uh, because of our hearts. We love power, and we love absolute power, and uh, we can't handle absolute power. Absolute power is a, uh, will corrupt you absolutely. You know the great thing about God? God has absolute power. But here's the amazing thing about God. God has power over his power. You ever thought about that? Because of God's nature and because God's character is holy, see, his use of power is always just. His use of power is always correct. Uh, there has never been an abuse of power with God. God has never, never once in history acted unjustly. Never. He can never be accused of being unjust. It's against his nature. God has power over his power. We have power as men. You, you know what is a damaging thing and a horrible thing? is when a man doesn't have power over his power. When a man doesn't have power over his power, children get abused. When a man doesn't have power over his power, wives get abused. Um, they get taken advantage of. Uh, power has to be governed uh, by character. In our culture, if you have an elevation in power, if you have an elevation in privilege, if you have an elevation in wealth, you know what that adds up to? It, those three things, elevation in power, wealth, privilege, those three things equal status. Status. And if you've got status, you're successful in our culture. What are some of the marks of status in our culture? G give me a few of them. Just go ahead. What? A big house. That's, that's status. Something else. More toys. What kind of toys? Automobiles. Okay. How many automobiles? 
I drove by a house the other day that um, I was with my brother-in-law, and he knew the guy that built this, and it has a 13-car garage. Now, here's something that's interesting. The guy that built it is single. I don't know who it is. Uh, all right, so toys, big house. What else? Being on TV. Huh. I guess for some people, yeah, that could be. You've made it. If you make it on TV. A trophy wife or girlfriend. Now, tell me about trophy wives. What's that? <laughs> you guys know what a trophy wife is. It's a guy who makes it, and uh, his wife's helped him to get to the top, and he's worked hard. And usually what happens is she covers the bases at home, and this guy puts in an extraordinary amount of hours. And um, that's kind of the arrangement. And then they're climbing the ladder. And there's an elevation in power and privilege and wealth. But then at a certain port, part, point, what happens is, is that this guy hooks up with some sweet young thing and discards his wife and gets what's called a, a trophy wife, some cow with... Uh, who's you know, probably in her 20s and probably had a boob job and uh, also had a job on her breast. Uh, you know, usually there's not a lot up here. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. Some sweet, young, mindless thing. I've been, I've been enjoying watching this thing with Jack Welch because, you know, he dumped his first wife and then he hired this gal, but he made a real big mistake. Because the gal that he married the second time, as I understand, is either an attorney or has a background in law, and she's just taking this guy to the cleaners. And, uh, you know, now he's got to disclose everything. I saw the other night, he's, he's, uh, he spends $8,000 a month on, uh, on food and wine. You know, that's a, that's a lot of food. That's a lot of wine. That's a lot of drive-throughs. You know what I mean? Anyway, what are some of the other signs of status in our culture? Get some more. Private schools. Private schools? Yeah. What else? Private plane. Yeah. Being a member of Augusta. That's pretty good, Dale. Yeah. Yeah, there's all kinds of different signs and symbols of status. Um, you know, the scripture, the scripture gives us some warnings. And I'd like you to turn with me, because this ties in. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Yeah, the scriptures have never been politically correct. They've just been correct. And there are some warnings that are given to us in Scripture about the whole issue of money and about uh, status and about privilege. Uh, because you know what happens is, uh, if you work hard and, uh, uh, and if you handle your resources well and if you handle them biblically and if you give, God will reward you. Uh, give and it shall be given unto you. That's a biblical concept. Uh, if, if you work uh, hard and put a business together 
and you use biblical principles, oftentimes there's going to be a financial reward that comes out of that because you're using biblical principles. Uh, but along with that comes a warning. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says this in verse 6. He says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by what? Contentment. Now see, he just talked about contentment over in Philippians 4. He, he, he made the statement, I have learned to be content. We'll get back there in a minute. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Now, can I ask you a question? If you were here tonight, and all you had was food and covering, would you be content? I'll tell you how I'd be. I'd be hacked off. I really would. I'd want to know what was wrong. I'd, want to, I'd have an issue with the Lord. Why is it that all I have is food and covering? Paul says, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be what? Content. But see, the culture in which we live, the bar has been raised so high that we've lost perspective. And, and we have to be very, very careful. Um, Look at verse uh, 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And you don't hear that too often, do you? Let's do that again. For those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Uh, Spurgeon said... Of all the dangers in the Christian life, the desire to get rich may be the most dangerous because it is the one we do not fear. You catch that? Of all the dangers in the Christian life, the danger, the desire to be rich may be the most dangerous of all because it is the one that we do not fear. If, if God blesses us financially, we should have some fear about that. Why should we have some fear? Why should we have concern? Uh, well, because, like anything else, it can be uh, used wrongly, and it can be misappropriated, and here's the other thing, it can get a hold of our hearts. Did you see that there? Uh, <clears throat> it says there's a temptation, there's a snare. Snares tend to be uh, ambushes. Uh, a snare is something you don't see coming. Most of us don't see the potential snare that money can have in our lives if that desire... Now, do you want to provide for your family? Sure. Should you want to provide for your family? Sure. Uh, do you want to... Uh, uh, most of guys, I think, who are normal, you want to give your kids and your family some stuff that perhaps you didn't have. Well, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, but you've got to be careful because is it possible to err and give your kids too much too soon and ruin them. Sure it is. So see, right there we can see that that's got to be handled correctly and it's got to be handled carefully. Then he goes on the next verse and he says this. But um, for the love of money. Now see, there's the issue right there. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's everything wrong with loving money. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. 
and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Jump down to verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Now, let's, let's, uh, let's just stop for a minute. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. Who would that be in this room? It'd be all of us. Because we're Americans. Now, once again, we're comparing to everybody else in the culture. You know? Maybe you're a little lower on the totem pole when it comes to American culture. But if you expand... Um, if you, if, if you expand the playing field to include all the nations of the world, there's not a guy in here who doesn't live like a king. There's not a guy in here who isn't filthy rich by the world standards. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Why? Well, why would someone be conceited over their riches? They think they're the ones that produced them. Deuteronomy says, it is he who gives you the power to make wealth. Uh, have you been blessed by God financially? Well, then you give glory to God. There's nothing to be conceited about. There, there's nothing to, uh, that would enable you to have a spirit of, of, of self-adulation or self-congratulation. That's just a gift of God. Uh, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. My gosh, if anything in the last 18 months has ever been proven, it's that passage. The uncertainty. How many guys have we seen in cuffs being arrested by U.S. Marshals or the FBI who are, who are worth 200, 200, who were worth? See, they were financially secure. That's an oxymoron, ultimately, isn't it? I mean, is there really anything in the world that's truly financially secure? No. Uh, gosh, we saw what happened in our economy on September 11th just from one attack. What, what, was, the, what was the consequence of just that episode? See, there is no financial security. So you don't want to fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. How many people, how many Christian people, uh, worked hard and gave, uh, uh, gosh, gave 110% at Enron or at WorldCom. And uh, they've lost it all. I mean, they're, they're, that's it. That's over. And they don't have enough time uh, to gather that money again to that degree, uh, uh, to that level of what they had. It's gone. It's over. Instruct them to do good. Oh, I, I, missed, I missed the last half of 17. Uh, not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, there's a perspective. Um, instruct them to, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Verse 18 and 19, I think, describes the people at Philippi. The people that Paul is thanking. The people who stood with him. The, the people that generously encouraged him with the gift. Uh, they did good. They were rich in good works. 
They were generous and they were ready to share. Why were that, they that way? Because they didn't love money. Flip over, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. Now, we were there last week. We'll stop off there again in our circuitous route back to, um, back to uh, Philippians 4. Verse 19 of Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, I, I was uh, talking with a gentleman uh, a few weeks ago who had taken a huge hit uh, in the stock market. Uh, he told me uh, this guy came from a very poor family, had nothing growing up. Uh, two years ago, he had a net worth of $8 million. What he's got today is zero. Basically wiped him out. And uh, one of the things he was talking about is that whenever he had a spare moment, whenever he had a spare moment, uh, this guy's a doctor, whenever he had a spare moment between patients, he'd run into his office and he'd go online, and what would he check? Check his stocks. Why? Well, verse 21, for where your treasure is... <laughs> There your heart will be also. And you know what he told me? He said, shoot, I might check that thing. He says, now I don't check it at all. Because <laughs> you know what? He says, I don't want to be depressed. So I just don't check it because all it's been doing is going down and down and down. And gosh, you know. And, and, and he said, you know, this has really been a good thing for me. He said, it really has been. It's, it's really got, it's given me some perspective again. He said, I was way out of control. And he said, you know what, I don't, he said, I, I, he said, you know what I've done? I basically just handed it over to the Lord. He's going to take care of me. He said, this, this, this was good for me. And when he said that, it reminded me of what David said in the Psalms. It was good for me that I was afflicted, because now I keep thy law. Jesus goes on, and he says in verse 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore that the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is money. So what's Jesus saying here? Uh, basically, you've got to figure out who's number one in your life, if it's the Lord or if it's money. See? That is such, and, and, and you know, all of us would say, well, yeah, I love the Lord. Sure I do. But you know what the interesting thing? Go back to what Spurgeon said. He said, the desire to get rich of all the dangers may be the worst because it is the one we do not fear. It's such a subtle thing. Um, how many guys were killed in Vietnam? Roughly 50,000, right? How many? 58,000, roughly? Let's say 50 just to round numbers. 50,000 men. In 1918, 500,000 Americans died in one year from an epidemic of influenza. I, uh, 
my grandma, who died at 101, we used to have these huge family reunions. And whenever the names of Troy and Dallas were brought up, well, there was a black cloud that descended on that gathering. Because Troy and Dallas were the two oldest boys in her family. There were 13, um, 13 kids in her family. And uh, Troy was up in Colorado working. And, uh, and he got the flu. And he was staying in this little cabin up in the mountains. Um, they didn't hear from him. One of his brothers, uh, did I say it was Troy that got sick first? Uh, Dallas went up there to check on his brother, knocked on the door, door is locked, and his brother says, don't come in, I've got the flu. Well, he went in, and they both died. Uh, the influenza epidemic of 1918 killed 500,000 people in America. It spread around the world and killed 22 million people across the world. Can you imagine? 22 million. Ten times the amount of people were lost in one year in America as we lost in Vietnam during that whole war. Uh, most of us are not sitting here tonight worried about an outbreak of influenza, are we? As horrible an epidemic as that was, there was one that was worse still. So a couple hundred, three hundred years before, there was a plague, there was an epidemic that swept Europe called the Black Death or the Plague. They didn't know what was causing it. I mean, entire villages, entire families, extended families, from the great-grandparents down to the little babies would be wiped out in a period of about seven, eight, nine, ten days. I mean, it, it, the estimates were that somewhere between a third to a half of the population of Europe was killed in the Black Plague. Now, they didn't know what was going on. Now we know that the plague was a disease of rats, technically of rat fleas. Um, these fleas would attach themselves to rats, and in the crowded conditions that most people lived in in the cities in Europe, um, the rats were the carriers of the plague. Now, we're not sitting here tonight worried about dying from the plague or from the flu. But I would submit to you guys, there's something that we ought to be deathly afraid of. It's not influenza, it's affluenza. Thing about affluenza, you don't get it from rats, you get it from the rat race. Are we not in the rat race? What's the goal of the rat race? More and more and more and more. Well, how much do you have? Not enough. What's the famous story of John D. Rockefeller, who had countless, countless millions? Mr. Rockefeller, how much will it take to make you happy? Just another million. Just another million. Let's go back to Philippians 4. Because you see, in Philippians 4, Paul lets us in on something that he says is a secret. It's certainly a secret to the world. And quite frankly, it's a secret to most believers. Verse 11 of chapter 4. Not that I speak from want. Well, let me ask you something. Where was this guy? In his gated community? Huh? Driving his... Yeah, he was in a gated community. Yeah, he sure was. <laughs> Yeah, and he had, there was good security in this community. See, not, not, look at this. Not that I speak from want. 
What are you talking about? You're in prison. But he says, I don't speak from want. For I have learned to be what? Content. Content. Contentment is a rare thing. Uh, when we live within the epidemic of affluenza, and what is affluenza? I think affluenza is a very slow-moving spiritual virus that gets into the minds and hearts of good Christian people and distorts their judgment and, and, and wars for their heart and for their affection. Affluenza is always trying to crowd out my love of Christ, but it's very subtle. It's very subtle. It's extremely subtle. And, and, and quite frankly, most of us don't fear it, but we should be deathly afraid of it. Because it's such a snare, it's such a trap, it's such an ambush, uh, it's so tough to see, and it's so tough to recognize. Uh, contentment, Paul says. Contentment. And then he says, in the next verse, he says, um, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. So is Paul condemning people? who have been blessed by God? Is he condemning people that have been given a big home and drive nice automobiles? Is he condemning that? No. Paul says, I can live that way. He says, I know what it is to live like that. Uh, he says, I also know how to live in humble means. In other words, he says, I can go either way. I can go trailer park, or I can go gated community North Dallas. I can go either way, quite frankly. Why? Because those aren't the issues in my life. Um, in any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Contentment is an amazing thing. We rarely hear of contentment in our culture. I told this story in August. Some of you guys heard it. But to me, it's the most graphic illustration I've ever had in my life of the issue of contentment. We had, uh, we had moved to, to Little Rock, and um, bought a nice home there on, gosh, I don't know, an acre? Probably an acre, I guess. The backyard was at least a third of an acre. And uh, the house was about 10 years old, and uh, it just had a, a nice paint job on it. And I was uh, cutting the grass for the first time, and the place had been empty for all summer, and the grass, was unbelievably high, and I had uh, a snapper, an old snapper mower. I wasn't going to get a um, riding mower. I should have, but I didn't want to spend the money. So it took me, and this is no exaggeration, this was like in July or August. I cut that grass, and it took me, and I timed it, it took me eight hours, and I had 22 bags of clippings when I was done. And it was, uh, it was a long day, and I, it was hot, and it was humid. Uh, I would uh, stop periodically, drink iced tea on the deck, uh, just take a break, you know. But when I got done, I want to tell you something. That grass, I edged it. I'm, I mean, it just—it was perfect. And that, and that green grass, that white house, 
I mean, it just looked great. I felt pretty good. Felt pretty content, to be honest with you. Uh, I'm kind of, I'm worn out. I go into the house, get some more tea. I sit down. I'm flipping through this magazine. And uh, it was talking about these projects, these, these homes that they had done these before and after things on. And there was this one couple in uh, uh, Des Moines who had remodeled their kitchen. And it showed the before and after. And they had a regular kitchen. And you know, uh, it was just a regular kitchen. But then, but then they had remodeled it. And I want to tell you, this kitchen was unbelievable. I mean, they had, they had an island, and they had this, these new countertops, and the island, the butcher block, and then they had this pantry. The pantry was gotten. They had this pantry that had French doors. You'd open it up, and you'd push a button, and the pantry would rotate in a circular motion and bring it all to you. It was unbelievable. Incredible. Uh, I turned the page, and there was a couple in Boise who had redone their back deck. It was just a normal deck. But you should have seen when they were done. I mean, this deck, beautiful redwood, it followed the natural contours of, of the property. They built an amphitheater down there. The governor was inaugurated there. I mean, this was a deck like I'd never seen. Incredible. Well, I'm out of tea, so I go into the kitchen to get some more iced tea. And as I walk into the kitchen, I just stop. And I'm looking at this kitchen, which I'd been fine with all afternoon. But I walk into the kitchen and I'm looking, you know, there's, there's no island. Um, there's, uh, there's no stone granite counter. It's just formica that's kind of stained. I went to get some sweet and low and the pantry didn't <laughs> rotate. I had to reach in and get it. Uh, and as I'm standing there, putting the sweet low on my tea, I look out on the deck, which I had enjoyed all afternoon. And I'm looking at that deck, and I'm thinking, you know, I've seen firewood in better shape than that deck. <laughs> now, what happened to me? I mean, I was thoroughly content and happy. Well, I had picked up the magazine. What magazine? Homes and Gardens. No, that's not it. Better Homes and Gardens. Better than whose? Better than mine. <laughs> better kitchens than mine? better decks than mine. Have you ever just gone out some Sunday afternoon and looked at model homes with your wife? Don't do that. You don't want to do that. Why not? Because they're always better. Better than whose? Better than yours. Here's the principle. Here's the principle. Comparison destroys contentment. There's the principle. Comparison destroys contentment. See, the thing about Paul, he's not comparing anything. Paul is grateful by the grace of God to be recipient, to be a recipient of the grace of God and to have all of his needs met. If he has food, if he has clothing, he's content because he's not comparing to anybody. See, Paul does not have affluenza. Uh, Paul has got his priorities right. Now, uh, and let's not get weird here. Paul is not uh, condemning anyone who's been blessed and has a nice home and is able to drive a nice vehicle and all that. Nothing wrong with that as long as your heart is in the right place. And see, the, the fact of the matter is, for people who love God, many times 
people who have a love for God uh, will be blessed by God because God can trust them with the finances. Uh, they will be givers. Uh, they will... Um, I knew a gentleman on the West Coast. He, he just passed away about six months ago. And this, this guy had been blessed by God. He and his wife. Uh, he had been led to Christ by Bill Bright at University of California at Berkeley in 1958. And uh, there was a family business. His dad was a good businessman. This guy was unbelievable and was incredibly blessed by God. I, I would, uh, it's my guess that he probably gave 90% of his income away. He and his wife were worth millions upon millions. Uh, drove a nice car, lived in a nice place, uh, nice place, but there were nicer places. Uh, you know what this guy did? He said, this is where we're going to live. This is comfortable for us. Uh, and they just gave it away. They just gave it away. You know what? He's with the Lord, and they're still giving it away because of how he set it up and structured it in a the foundation. They're still giving it away. Isn't contentment a great thing? And when we lose, when we lose contentment, gosh, it, it can create all kinds of chaos in our lives. Uh, contentment is perspective. Did you notice that Paul said, he said, I have learned? See, contentment doesn't come naturally to us. Contentment is something that you have to learn. Contentment is a mark of maturity in the Christian life. Uh, contentment is not one of the first lessons we learn as believers. Uh, contentment is something that God continues to work on in our hearts um, where we're willing to trust Him with our circumstances and with our station in life. That's contentment. I'm willing to submit my circumstances and my plans to the Lordship of Christ, who does all things well. Uh, can I live well? Yeah. Can I live not so well? Yeah. Because those are not the things, those are not the things that give me status. Those are, and you know, is, is not status really overrated? I mean, what, is it in, in the long run, is it not truly insignificant? We all know that it is. Sure it is. I've been reading a book this week by Randy Alcorn, a friend of mine up in Oregon. Uh, Randy uh, pastor with Stu Weber for a number of years. And uh, Randy has written a little booklet called The Treasure Principle. Um, that's really a remarkable book. Randy is a unique guy. Um, Randy, when, just when we were out of seminary, he had, uh, Randy had some pretty strong feelings over the whole abortion issue. And he, was, he felt so strongly about it. And uh, again, he lives in Oregon. And things were so out of control in Oregon that uh, Randy went down and actually protested. And, um, you know, said, hey, I don't think this is right. I think it's wrong. And uh, he got arrested. Uh, he's a pastor in a church. Uh, he got arrested. He got thrown in jail. And... Uh, and they got wind that uh, 
the way this thing was going to be structured with the judge that was hearing the case, that, uh, that Randy and the other guys were in big trouble for taking a stand. So what happened was the elders of the church uh, basically uh, met with some guys who were Christian attorneys, and they figured out a way. Basically what they did was that uh, they completely restructured uh, Randy's life. Uh, he didn't get a salary from the church. He, in fact, he didn't get anything. They put his royalties from his books in a trust, and, and basically Randy made nothing, So, which was wise because about... Uh, eight or nine months later, he got a judgment against him that, uh, uh, for, I forget, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, uh, his wife went to work as a secretary, and, you know, they just, and they'd just been able to pay off their house. So they just were living very modestly. And uh, uh, that kind of set Randy on a journey. And uh, he was sort of forced to live at a certain level. And God took care of their needs, and he had two girls, and, you know, being raised and all that kind of stuff. And, and basically, what happened was, for Randy, everything that came in, he couldn't take it anyway, so he just started giving it away. And what was interesting is, the more that came in, and the more he gave, the more that kept coming in. And I haven't talked to Randy in a couple of years, but I was reading his book. He, he was just talking about what's happened. And about three years ago, the, the period of judgment was over for him. And the guys on his board said, hey, Randy, you can now, we can increase your your income. And Randy and his wife thought about it, and they said, you know, we don't need to do it. We're fine. We're, we're, we're doing great. So let's not do it. About two months later, the judge extended the judgment for another 10 years. But it wasn't an issue because they'd already decided it wasn't an issue for them. Uh, what happens is, as Randy has continued, see, he continues to give, and then more comes in, and then more comes in, and he gives, and then more comes in. Uh, in the last three years, Randy's given over a half million dollars to ministries. I, I doubt if he makes 50000 a year. Uh, he's lived this principle out. He's a really unique guy called the treasure principle. I want to I read you something from Randy's book uh, that I really found to be interesting. Uh, he's talking about giving, and, and you see... Let's remember this in context, guys. Paul is thanking the people at Philippi for doing what? For giving. They gave to him. They helped meet his needs. So they were givers. Randy quotes from George Barna, who has done some research on the giving habits of born-again Christians. I see we don't usually talk about this. Uh, but we'll talk about it. Okay. Barna has done a study, and he says, among born-again adults, born-again Christian adults, last year there was a 44% rise in those who gave nothing to a church, to a ministry. Compared to 1999, the mean per capita donation to churches dropped by 19% in the year 2000. One-third of born-again adults said they tithed in 2000, but a comparison of their actual giving and household income reveals that only one-eighth did so. Barna basically has surveyed and says that the average Christian family gives approximately 2 to 3% of their income. That's it. Just 2 to 3. We're talking about people that believe the Bible, people that take the Scriptures seriously. Now, there's a, there's a debate on this whole issue of giving and how much we should give. The reason I'm bringing it up is that the Philippians gave. They were givers. 
See, we live in a culture of affluenza. We live in a, in a culture of more and more and more. We live in a culture where it's very dangerous. These warnings that Paul gave about money, how do you know, how do you draw lines? How do you keep affluenza from getting a hold of your heart? If you're concerned about affluenza in your heart, that it's getting a hold of you, you know what I think the solution is? Is give. Because, see, the issue of affluenza is that you want more and more. But if you give more, that's the antidote. Giving is the antidote to affluenza. Um, now, you guys know about a tithe. And this is where it gets a little, we got debates on this thing. Because the tithe is an Old Testament concept. Now, you know, in the Old Testament, they didn't just have one tithe, they had three tithes. And when you added up everything that the average Jew was giving, it was probably closer to 23 to 27% of their income. But a tithe means the tenth part. Um, uh, you remember the Italian prophet Malachi in the Old Testament? Turn with me to Malachi. Actually, it's Malachi. Last book of the Bible. In Malachi, God's got some issues with these folks. And one of the issues that he has with them is that they have not kept uh, the Old Testament requirement uh, of a tithe. Malachi 3.8, will a man rob God? Yet you were robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God says, in tithes and offerings. You were cursed with a curse, for you were robbing me, the whole nation of you. God just lays it on the line with these guys. You know, another verse that goes hands in hand with this is Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. It says, honor the Lord from your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops. This is an interesting concept. Because if you're a farmer, and let's say you're a wheat farmer, well, when the first harvest comes in, you know, you, you're probably running low. And you need that wheat. You need that wheat to live on. You need that wheat to sell for income. But you know what God said to the people of Israel? He says those first fruits, the first stuff that comes in, what do, you, what do you do with it? You give it to me. That was an incredible act of faith because what if next week a, a, a fire uh, ravaged that, that wheat field? Well, the guy's, the guy's finished. He's done. He's financially wiped out and he can't feed his family. See, the concept of first fruit is giving to God first and then trusting God to meet your needs. That's the concept of first fruits. Now, there's some debate over all this because some people, oh, it's Old Testament and all that. I'm aware of the debate. Listen to what Randy says. I really like his wisdom here. <clears throat> Randy says, so does the concept of the tithe still apply to us today? Jesus validated the mandatory tithe even on small things. That's Matthew 23, verse 23. But there's no mention of tithing after the Gospels. Okay? No mention of tithing after the Gospels. It's neither commanded nor rescinded. And there's heated debate among Christians about whether tithing is still a starting place for giving. Randy says, I have mixed feelings on the issue. I, I hate legalism. 
I certainly don't want to try to pour new wine into old wineskins, imposing superseded first covenant restrictions on Christians who are under grace. Every New Testament example of giving goes beyond the tithe. However, none fall short of it. There's a timeless truth behind the concept of giving God our first fruits. Um, whether or not the tithe is still the minimal measure of first fruits, I ask myself, does God expect his new covenant children to give less or more? Did you catch that? Does God expect his new covenant, that's us, that's New Testament believers, does God expect his new covenant children to give less or more? Randy goes on and says, Jesus raised the bar, he never lowered it. I think he's got a, I think he's got a good point. Tithing is never commanded after the Gospels. But, but you see the point? You say, well, wait a minute. Tithing's a tenth. And, and you know what the response always is? I can't afford that. That's always the response. That's always what we think. Yeah. You're, you're talking a tenth. You're talking a tenth. That's what a tithe is. I can't afford that. You know a case could be made that you can't afford to not do it. The greatest financial principle in the history of the world is not from Payne Weber. It's not from uh, uh, Smith Barney. It's not from Merrill Lynch. Jesus said this. Jesus said, give, and it shall be what? Given unto, given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. Jesus doesn't give like Frito-Lay. You guys ever buy potato chips? You buy a big bag of potato chips. Down at the aerobic center? No, that's a joke. You ever buy a big bag of potato chips? You get it home, you open it up. And I mean, there's about an inch and a half of potato chips in there. Now, when they filled it at the plant, was it full? Yeah, it was full. You bet it was. But then they shipped it. And what happened is the ships, the chips begin to settle. See, by the time they get to you, you got an inch and a half of chips. You got about 12 inches of bag that's just air. Given it shall be given unto you. Press down. When God gives, and he give, when we give and he gives back to us, you know what he does? He gives back, and it's like he takes grain in a bag, and he fills the bag with grain, and then what he does is he shakes it. He presses it down. Press down. Here, we can get some more in there. Shake that sucker up. Press down, shaking together. Put some more in there. Put some more in. Running over. Paul commended them for their giving. The tendency in our culture, and, and you know, I think there's a possibility for a lot of us. I, I, I want to be careful how I say this, but I think it has to be said. I think for some of us, who are experiencing financial difficulty, the root issue is we're not giving. We're ignoring the principle of giving. Give and it shall be what? Given unto you. I'll be honest with you. I didn't, hear, I didn't learn much in college. I learned very little in college. Perhaps the most significant lesson I learned in college was when my dad had a major financial reversal. My dad had uh, invested pretty heavily in some apartments, and um, 
And then there was a problem with it's a long story. And, uh, and he lost it. He had two boys in college. Uh, it, was, it was tough. He was counting on that. He had worked hard on it, and that sucker went under. Uh, those were some lean years, and those were some tough years. Uh, toughest we've ever had as a family. Toughest I've ever seen. Uh, it was tight. And that went on for months, and then went on for some more months. And I remember after about two years, I remember, I remember the fact that my mom and dad had had a conversation, and my dad had gotten convicted over the fact that because of the financial pressure, he'd not been tithing. Uh, he just didn't feel that he could afford it, and so he hadn't. He was just trying to make ends meet. He's just trying to cover things, you know from day to day, from week to week. And my dad got convicted over that. My dad got convicted over the passage in Malachi because he was teaching a Bible study. And you know what my dad decided to do? He, he said, I went to my mom and said, you know what? We need to give. And we don't just need to give, we need to tithe. Because of what Malachi says. What does Malachi say? Look at the rest of it. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. My mom and dad decided they were going to tithe. And when my dad's accountant found out about that, who was a friend of his and a Christian and a good guy, he went nuts. In fact, he confronted my dad and said, Jim, you can't do this. This is crazy. You need to be putting some money aside for this and this. and You need to be making some investments. You know what my dad said? I am making an investment. The next year, so, so for that year, and my dad could not afford a tithe. He determined from then on, everything that came in, he was going to take a tenth off the top. The question always is, do you tithe off the gross or the net? I like what Larry Burkett says. Well, it, it depends on if you want to be blessed off the gross or the net. <laughs> That's up to you. I'm just telling you what I saw on my dad. He decided, I'm going to tithe everything that comes in, and he couldn't afford to tithe. The next year, his income went up 10 times. The next year. Next 12 months. From that point on, tenfold it went up. That next 12 months, he gave more than he had made the 12 months before. His tithe was greater than his income in a 12-month span of time. I think that's the greatest lesson I learned when I was in college. Give, and it shall be, what? Given unto you. See, with that context, let's read the rest of the verses in Philippians. Because see, these people were givers. They had a giving spirit. They had a willingness to trust God. And so did Paul. See, that's why Paul could be content. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, does that mean financially? Yeah, but it means everything else. Whatever God, whatever circumstance of life you're in, whether it's abundance, I'm just working off the context here. Paul's talking about having plenty. He's talking about having need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. But, but it is tied up to the previous concept, guys. 
And then look at what he says next. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. Uh, jump down to verse 19. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Don't you love to hear stories about the goodness of God? Don't you love to hear stories about the greatness of God? And don't you love to hear stories about the provision of God? I do. Uh, I, I, I love them. My son John's favorite story is when uh, he was about three years old. Actually, he was about two years old. And we had a period of time where, uh, where I was between churches. Anyway, I don't want to go into the it was, it was the rough, one of the roughest times we'd ever been through. I may have told you guys this story. Uh, it, it, there was tremendous pressure financially. And uh, I, was, I was in a period of depression. It was very difficult. I had to have lunch with a guy at noon. It was a lunch that had been set up two months before. Uh, I, I didn't know this guy. He had called me, wanted to get together with me. We set this up. I didn't have a phone number for him. I was going to meet him at the Hyatt in Burlingame, California. So I showed just because I said I'd be there. I no more wanted to be with this guy. But he had heard a tape that I had done that ministered to him. His sister was in our church. I show up. Uh, I had left the church. I was between going to another church. We were in trouble financially. And I remember sweating it. I was sweating it because we were, out, we were basically out of money. I remember going to Safeway with less than $10 in my pocket. And uh, that was tough. That morning, I went to Safeway with less than 10 bucks. I go to meet this guy. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. I heard this tape. Oh, yeah, that's good. Wonderful. I'm smiling. Hey, good to see you. Hey, this is good. Oh, your sister's wonderful. Let me out of here because I need some money. <laughs> I didn't want to be with that guy. I didn't want to talk with that guy. We're talking niceties for about 30 minutes. And finally, this guy, I'll never forget it, this guy, this guy finally, he just drops his head and he puts his fork down. And I just looked and I thought, gosh, what's the matter here? And he didn't say anything. He just dropped his head. And he looked up at me and he said, can I shoot straight with you? And I said, yeah. I said, what's wrong? He said, I'm going to tell you the truth and I don't know if this is going to offend you or not. He said, I, my sister sent me this tape you did about two months ago. He said, it really helped me. He said, that next week, he said, I woke up in the middle of the night, and you were on my heart. And I had this sense that I was supposed to help you out financially. He said, I don't even know you. I, I, it was the craziest thing. I didn't. He said, stuff like that doesn't happen to me. I don't go to a charismatic church. He said, I don't do that stuff. He said, I went to, you know, he said, I just, he said, about a week later, the same thing happened to me. I woke up, and you're on my mind. And I'm thinking, I need, this guy, I need to help. And, and, and it happened again. And I told my wife about it. And he, and, and he said, this is weird. And she said, well, call the guy, just call him up. He said, what am I going to say to him? She said, just have lunch with him. He said, so I called and asked you to have lunch. I said, the real reason was that, he says, can I tell you the truth? He said, I think, he, he said, I don't want to offend you, but he said, I want to ask you a straight question. Do you have a financial need? <laughs> and I said, me? <laughs> We're fine. 
Was I fine? No, I'm going down for the count. This guy was desperate. He was more desperate than I was. I, I'm dead serious. He was desperate. He was scared to death. He said, I don't want to offend you, but do you have a financial need? I said, this is unbelievable. I said, yeah, I do. He said, would you mind telling me what it is? And I told him. Sucker took out his checkbook, wrote the check, and handed it to me. He says, now maybe I can sleep at night. <laughs> my boy John, my boy John loves that story. It's his favorite story. I hate that story. Now, when I say that, you know what I mean. I love the ending. But see, I had to get down to Zippo to see the grace of God and the goodness of God. See, some of you guys might be at Zippo. You might be tapped out and zeroed out. And you may be thinking, you know what? I can't afford to give. Can I challenge you to trust Almighty God? I don't know where you are in New Testament, Old Testament. All I know is that God says, test me. Test me. Try me. You ever heard of the Pepsi challenge? You know what God's doing? He's putting it right on the table. Challenge me. Test me. And see if I don't open up the windows of heaven. You want a story? You want a story like my dad's got? Then test him. And let him open up the windows for you. And then you'll tell your kids the story. And then they'll tell their kids. So, Lord, we come to you. Lord, we are inundated with the principles of the world. Lord, you, you invented money. You invented finances. It's your deal. It's your street. It's not Wall Street. It's your deal. You have given us principles in your word which tell us how to live. Uh, they, they, Lord, they don't deal as much with money as they do with our hearts. There's sound financial principles in your word. Nothing extreme. It's balanced. It's true. It makes sense from a supernatural perspective. But sometimes, Lord, it doesn't make sense to give to you first. The world says, no, you can't do that. Hoard on. Hold that. Hoard it. You can't do that. That's crazy. You're nuts. Lord, would you give us um, your perspective on this? You've been so gracious, and you've been so good, and you've been so kind to us. Lord, uh, you've met all of our needs according to your riches and glory. Lord, perhaps we've been um, out of fear. Out of fear, we have not been doing our part. And uh, we have not trusted you. I pray for every guy in this room. This isn't any big appeal. We're not trying to, we're not trying to raise money in here. We're, not trying to, we're just trying to teach the scriptures. We're just trying, Lord, to walk with you. And we believe your word. We believe you honor your word. I pray, Lord, that you will um, increase our faith. I pray that you'll give us the courage to trust you and to be obedient. 
Lord, we know in our hearts we can. You've never let us down. You watch over your word to perform it. Let us glory in that over these holidays. Lord, let us be givers over this holiday. This, this Christmas thing uh, has gotten so out of control. We're, we're grateful that, that you gave us the Savior of the world. We're grateful that we know the truth about Jesus. We're grateful that we can give gifts to one another. We enjoy that. If, if anyone should enjoy it, we should. But Lord, help us to be wise this Christmas. There are people around us that are hurting. They're just hurting so bad. Would you give us the wisdom to be givers this year? Give us the wisdom to help. Give us the wisdom to minister. To be, uh, to, to, be to some other folks what the Philippians were to Paul. Those are the Christmases that are the very best Christmases. I, I remember, Lord, just a few years ago when I took my kids down and we went to that little house in Fort Worth and that, that, that lady was dying of AIDS. And she came out of that back bedroom, at which there were no walls. It was separated by curtains. And there was no heat. We were freezing in that house. And, and we were able to give a few gifts to her and, and her children. And I'll never forget driving home how quiet my kids were in the car. They didn't say a word. And I'll never forget when, when John opened his mouth. He said, this is the best Christmas I've ever had. Now, Lord, we haven't done that the last couple of years. We need to do it this year. Use us all this Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Guys, we've had a good time. Yep. Lord bless you. We'll see you next year, next year. in January. Okay? Have a great holiday time. Good holiday. Hey, Thank Have you, a good man. One. God bless you.